Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello, OnScript listeners. This is Matt Lynch. I'm a co-host of the podcast with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, and Chris Tilling. If you don't know who we are or want to get to know us, please visit onscript.study and click on the About button. A quick word of thanks to those of you who support the podcast, and a special shout-out to Pavi Thomas for his support and kindness toward us, and another to Palmer Temple. He's a good family friend and has also generously supported our work. If you could do us a favor and give us a rating on iTunes, that would be very much appreciated. A few of you have done that already, so thank you very much. In this episode, I speak with Mark Scarlatta about one of my favorite books to study, teach, and write about, and that is the book of Exodus. It's kind of a big deal in the Bible, and I had a lot of fun talking with Mark, so I hope you enjoy this. Welcome to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch, and I'm joined today by Mark Scarlatta, who is a lecturer in Old Testament at St. Melitus College in the UK and is also an ordained Anglican priest and vicar in Cambridge. He's the author of three books, including the one we're discussing today, The Abiding Presence, a theological commentary on Exodus. Mark, welcome to OnScript. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be with you. So, Mark, what is the uh, driving premise of this book that you've written in um, in The Abiding Presence? Well... I mean, I guess really it comes down to the title is is just the the movement of I mean Exodus is all about movement and it's all about the movement of God's salvation for his people and for these um, ancestors of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And one of the things as, uh, that you know, before writing the commentary, what I was struck about was the um, the movement and how different the movement of God's divine presence is in uh, Exodus as it is to to Genesis and and the pat- patriarchal period, and so what struck me was from you know and, and obviously other scholars had seen this before, but you have kind of the foreshadowing of uh, God's appearance in uh, the burning bush, uh, foreshadowing Sinai, and then foreshadowing the tabernacle in the end of the at the end of the um, at the end of Exodus and Exodus forty, and so what struck me was that actually. You know, among the whole deliverance motifs and all of the other motifs that come into Exodus and liberation and all of these things, and law, law and 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 whatnot, <clears throat> and what struck me was the, the 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 kind of centrality, or at least in my mind, of reading through the narrative and seeing how, you know, the movement from kind of the what is the virtual absence of God in Exodus one and two, uh, to his you know his absolute utmost kind of abiding uh, permanent president presence among the Israelites in the tabernacle to Exodus 40, and then kind of everything in between that. And so, so I saw that as kind of the, the, the driving kind of narrative force of the story of, of this movement of Israel from, you know, from uh, kind of the absence of God or waiting on God in suffering to, to be having him abide 
perfectly in their uh, in their midst in the heart of their community and 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 that to me was kind of kind of sums up the whole really the whole of Exodus I mean there's so many other things obviously in it but but that was what I saw as kind of one, you know really the driving movement of the whole narrative yeah I think I think that's a, a great uh, overview and and what I really liked about the book is the fact that that unifying theme of divine presence also lends itself to the writing of the kind of book that you wrote uh, because because your your book and I was really surprised by this when at first I saw it was a, a commentary I thought okay how's how's it going to be uh, doing an interview on a commentary but but actually you what you've done is shown how uh, the the book of Exodus is a unified book, and and you can write on the book of Exodus in a way that reads like a book too. So so your book, um, the the abiding presence, really reads like uh, something you can just start at the beginning and read through cover to cover. Unlike most commentaries I've read. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's the um, you know that's the beauty. I mean, I love I love all commentaries, all shapes and sizes, but I think that's the beauty of a of a of a a more kind of theologically oriented um, commentary is that you do get a sense of taking larger chunks of the text and and kind of seeing how the narrative flows out and 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 really what what kind of theological you know themes and motifs come out of that and I think that is um, you know I, I don't know it probably goes back to my you know I did did I studied English um, literature in uh, in university and undergraduate and and I think you know and I think there is something in me that loves to you know, loves to see the wholeness of the story. I mean, that's not to say that Exodus isn't a completely complex and, you know, multi-layered text that came, you know, probably came together, you know, over, over centuries. Um, but, you know, it, it, the way that it's crafted now is, um, is just, is just so amazing. And I think also that whole theme of, of, of kind of abiding presence. I mean, I don't know about you, um, <clears throat> but when I used to read, read Exodus, you know, you get to the, you know, the mind numbing, you know, description chapters on, on the tabernacle. And you think, you think, what is going on here? You know, why are they spending so much time? And why are there a whole nother five chapters just to uh, essentially repeat, um, you know, the, the previous five chapters on, you know, God's giving Moses the, uh, you know, the layout and the details of the, of the tabernacle. And then, but, but when you read it through the lens of, uh, of kind of this, you know the the force of the narrative being God coming to dwell, you know, in this permanent way in His holiness with His people. I mean, you do see that you know at the at the crux of of Exodus, at least certainly after Exodus fifteen in the wilderness and Sinai and so on. You know, the 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 crux of Exodus seems to be this question of 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 how can a holy God dwell with an unholy people? And, and, you know, the answer is within, you know, the law at Sinai and the prescriptions for the tabernacle. And, and if they can keep these two things, or if they can do these two things, which, which of course they can't, but if they can, um, then, you know, his holiness will in, in some ways infect the Hebrews, the, you know, the Israelites to, to become this holy nation, to become this kingdom of priests. So, yeah, no, I thought that was absolutely fascinating when I went back through it and kind of read it through that lens. Yeah, I, I want to get into that in more uh, detail. Uh, but you you mentioned that you studied English in college, and I actually want to ask a, l- a little bit more about how you decided to pursue biblical studies in the first place. And was there was there a key moment where, where you said, you know, I want to stick my nose in the Hebrew Bible for the rest of my life? 
<laughs> That's a good question. Um, yeah, I don't know that there was a there was a key moment. Well, actually, there probably was a key. There was actually somewhat of a key moment now that now that you mention it. Um, I mean, I had come back, so I had been living um, uh, after university. I went abroad and did some work with the church overseas, and I had been living in Japan for a couple of years, and decided to come back as I was teaching more in the church and preaching more. And I thought, gosh, I, I really actually have to know something before I keep <laughs> preaching preaching on all this stuff. So, so went back to seminary. Did my did my MDiv, and then it was funny enough, it was at my, um, my, the first church where I was working at in Connecticut, a congregational church. And, um, my co-pastor and I, um, we decided that we wanted to do a, uh, a sermon series on a book in the old Testament. You know, God, Lord knows why, but we chose Daniel of all books and it, <laughs> it turned out to be on a possible, probably actually the, like one of the most difficult preaching yeah, it's, series. It, it's I've okay had. for the first six chapters and then it <laughs> exactly, just gets weird. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so it was one of those things where, um, you know, where I was just forced to go back to kind of all the stuff that I had learned in seminary and all the, you know, kind of back to my Hebrew, back to my, um, back to my exegesis. And, um, and, and so it was, I think it was at that point that I really started feeling out of a longing to get back into or to, to further study the Old Testament. And then, um, and then my church was so gracious uh, that they let me go because I was in Connecticut. And so I went up to um, Yale for a couple of years and did a part-time MA in Old Testament. And, um, and, then, that was, and then that was really what led to um, kind of coming to, coming to Cambridge to do the PhD. But yeah, so I think it was probably Daniel. It was probably actually, yeah, now that I think about it, it was probably the, 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 the utter confusion of Daniel and trying to preach from Daniel. That was the other, that was the other hard thing, trying to translate it into something worthy. And have you sorted Daniel out since then? <laughs> no, I've avoided it completely. That's why I've gone to the Pentateuch instead. Okay. Yeah. Maybe one day eventually. Um, so what would you say are some of the questions then that, that animate your work? You know, are your, are they things that come out of your pastoral work or your own kind of personal curiosity or things, um, that students ask in the classroom or what, you know, what would you say are the animating forces behind your work? Yeah, I, I would say probably mostly the classroom. I mean, I think we have, um, so, so like you, I'm, we're at a, a kind of theological uh, college or um, seminary in, in the UK. Um, we, we train uh, at St. Melitus, we train um, mostly uh, ordinance who are going to be in uh, priests in the Church of England. Um, but we have, we have regular undergraduates as well. But I think, I think so much of what I do, and I think so much of this commentary actually was written really with my students in mind, um, because I think it was, it was the hope was the hope was that it would be um academic enough in the sense of you know offering resources and background and the scholarship on the subject um but not overwhelmingly academic i mean i think this was the hardest thing for me in writing this commentary was to to try to allow it to flow without burdening it with too many footnotes because i mean I, I i love footnotes and i could you know just go for a mile with them but it was it was you know it was painful at times to try to to try to hold back and um but it was i, I did it uh, you know very purposely because i think there is something about you know about reading through a book and reading through the flow of a book and and not always being distracted by endless you know endless footnotes and i think that was that was kind of part of the reason you know of 
the way the commentary is written um, was to allow students to just pick it up, to read through it, to really come to grips with what Exodus is and then what it means for their life and faith, their kind of biblical theology, how that helps them, sh- how shapes their understanding of the New Testament and things of that nature. Um, so, but but also preaching, you know, because so much of um, you know, I was I was preaching frequently on Exodus when um, uh, when you know, as and when I was writing the commentary in my uh, in my church. So that was uh, that was fun too. Yeah. So so you're uh, an Anglican priest, and you're also lecturing at St. Melitus, and you're writing different books. How do you how do you balance all of that? That's a great question. The, the the actual the answer to that is is it and and I say this in all seriousness is, is Sabbath rest. Um and and this is actually one of the one of the other great things that I'm um uh, that came out of my study of Exodus. You're just trying to promote your book. No, I know this. I'm promoting my next book on Sabbath. That's what I want to ah, promote. <laughs> okay. So, so yeah, no, I've just been, I've been absolutely, I think that was one of the, one of the surprises of, of studying Exodus was, uh, was the, you know, the centrality of the Sabbath, you know, whether it's in the manna story or the actual commandments, the Decalogue, or whether it's in, you know, framing the construction of the tabernacle and then the, the later Exodus, um, Exodus 31, the commandments regarding the Sabbath. But, but it really did, it really, it really struck me and it really, it really convicted me in many ways because I knew that my life, I, because I hadn't done a study of the Sabbath. And so what happened was about, about kind of a year, about a year and a half ago, I really began practicing kind of Sabbath rest. So it was, it was six in one. And because obviously because Sundays is, is kind of a work day for me in the church, um, you know, kind of Friday evening, I kind of hold to, you know, the typical Jewish Sabbath, you know, Friday evening, I light a candle, I say my Sabbath prayer and, um, you know, and, and turn off all my digital devices. Don't look at anything that has to do with scholarship or anything. I try to be, I've got three children, so I go and play with them and try to do my best at, at, you know, go for a bike ride, something. And, um, you know, and I have found actually that that rhythm of six and one of kind of six days of work and one of rest has been um, just absolutely fundamental to kind of my <laughs> just my health and my and my life and my work and and giving me a sense of, of um, a sense of you know, a sense of joy and a sense of kind of excitement about it. But, um, but yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it does get, it does get a little, a little crazy at times, but, um, but it's just, but I, I, I love being a part of the church and I love, you know, I still love kind of being a full-time lecturer at the theological college and, and, and so all of the things, and, and to a certain extent, a lot of it blends in together. So I do, I do a lot of sermon writing on the trains okay. <laughs> back, back and forth to London <laughs> and listening to your podcast. That's the other time where I, swear, I could do enjoy on script is when I'm driving down to uh, one of our centers in Chelmsford. I could drive there and back. So I always get to listen to the, uh, the most recent podcast there. Yeah. And the most recent being with uh, Dr. Irvine Shablatsum. Um, have you, have you listened to that one yet? No, no, no. I haven't gotten to that one yet. Ah, okay. Well, um, you, you, you need to listen to that one. Yeah, good, um, good. That's, that's a very special episode. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I have a lot of questions here about about Sabbath, we can jump right into Sabbath um, since the Bible kind of does in the beginning, right? You know, um, so so what are what are some of the things that, or maybe what are some of the misunderstandings about Sabbath that you think that uh, Christians hold and that we need to be liberated from? 
Yeah, I think, I mean, I think for me, um, in studying, you know, kind of how the Sabbath is, is approached in the New Testament, how it's approached by Christ. And I, and I read a little bit about at the end of, um, I can't even remember what chapter it is, but one of the chapters, I think it's the one on manna maybe, um, <clears throat> about the, the kind of Jesus's response to the Sabbath and, and some of the things that are going on in the New Testament period. Um, but I think the often, you know, often, and, and maybe this was my own um, kind of understanding is that, is that, you know, Jesus the Sabbath is always a confrontational uh, event in the New Testament. You know, it's always, there's always some sort of confrontation around it. And so I think the default is for Christians just to simply think, well, you know, obviously then, you know, the Sabbath is obliterated, you know, it's superseded by Christ, you know, Jesus has died and resurrected and all those, those old laws are, you know, are, are gone basically, you know, we have this new covenant. And so, but then it struck me, um, you know, that, well, it struck me about its centrality in the, in the Exodus narrative, but then just in the Decalogue itself, you know, that, that how is it that, you know, in my mind, and this is where I was really felt convicted, but how is it in my mind that we can still say, you know, or, or hold to an even more stringent interpretation of, you know, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, uh, do not bear false witness, all of those. And yet somehow just decide that, you know, the fourth commandment for Sabbath rest is just, it's just not, it's yeah, just not, yeah. not applicable anymore. <laughs> and so that got me, so that got me thinking. And, um, and then I started doing some research. I read a great book. Um, there was a collection of essays, um, on the Sabbath and, um, and it traced kind of the historical change in the church. And what I realized is actually in the, in the very early new Testament, um, most of, most of the early Christians probably did, did still practice Sabbath. Um, but then they began worshiping on the Lord's day, which was Sunday, the day of resurrection. And then, so it's really, you know, kind of, you know, there's a lot of history in between, but, but really until Constantine, when, when, uh, when, the Lord's Day or Sunday is made kind of the essentially the official day of worship for the Christian church. But um, but the practice of Sabbath and the practice of rest, um, you know, still continued in some communities. Um, and then, and it wasn't really until later in the medieval period that actually Sabbath laws um, became associated with uh, Sunday. And so, so Sunday was always not, it wasn't a day that kind of the whole idea of Sabbath transferred to Sunday, though it can, it can be that. I don't think it matters what day you have Sabbath rest. Um, but it was the, um, but it was the medieval period that really began kind of um, instituting Sabbath laws against work and things like that on Sunday. So, so it's, it's, you know, it's a relatively, you know, relatively recent, um, recent change. But I think, but I think that, that there is a sense of, you know, because one of the things about Sabbath, I think, is this idea that God, it's a gift, you know, it's a gift that God gives to his people and it's a gift of rest. And, you know, Jesus says, you know, Sabbath was made for humanity and not humanity for the Sabbath. And, and I think that a gift of rest is something that is, you know, in the creation story and in, in <clears throat> Genesis one and two, it's something that is leading to the wholeness of creation. And I think there is something about Sabbath that is leading to wholeness and that something we experience as Christians now, you know, in Christ and in the spirit, um, that we're experiencing that holiness, but we're still very much physical fleshly beings. And, you know, and we also need, um, to physically stop. I mean, that's the, that's the root of what, you know, the, the Hebrew Shabbat means, it just means to cease and to stop. And so, you know, so it's fascinating. And that's why, you know, I wanted to write this little, this little book on that now, because, you know, because I think for us today, you know, the question really is, what does it mean to stop or to cease? Or what does it mean to, 
to embody a holy ceasing in a in kind of a digital world, you know, a, a kind of a nonstop, you know, a nonstop society that's kind of twenty four seven. And I think that's really critical for the church because there's, I mean, you know, the amount of you know clergy burnout and everybody, you know, is is just you know it it's astronomical and it shouldn't be that way. I mean, I just don't think that's what God calls us to, to do. You know, <laughs> I tell, I tell my students that I said, you know, you didn't get called to the priesthood so that you could burn out in three years and then go into rehab. <laughs> you know, that's, that's not really why God calls you to this ministry of his church. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting then that in, in terms of instituting law, um, that's really the first law that gets set in place for the Israelites as they're leading, leaving Egypt is, is God's already training them. Well, I mean, you, you could, you could look at the Passover law and festivals and so on, but, but as they get into the wilderness, he starts training them in Sabbath practices because that's, that's the heart of the difference between Pharaoh and Yahweh in, in the story of the Exodus, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's, um, you know, and, and that to me, you know, when you, I think I talk about this in the in the commentary, but that to me is 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 what's so powerful about that manna story is that is that there's no you know this is prior to the prior to the command at Sinai, and it's but it's all based in creation. So the the whole rhythm, the whole rhythm of God's people is based not just simply in commandment, but it's based in this gift of bread from heaven and this, you know, in this pattern after, you know, God's own creation. And I think that is, I mean, at least in my mind, that's a a kind of a rhetorical device that the author uses to really undergird the, you know, kind of the, the, the centrality and importance of, you know, Israel's practice of, of Sabbath rest. And, and I think that's a, you know, it's, and it's a fascinating way that I think this, this kind of ancient kind of story about the wanderings in the wilderness has been kind of reshaped and reformed in, into this, you know, into this within emphasis on, on Sabbath. Yeah. And I I think that idea of Sabbath as a gift is behind Jesus decision to heal so often on the Sabbath um, is because he's, I mean, that seems to be his favorite day to do healings, right? <laughs> exactly. and, and it's not, and I don't think it's just to provoke a confrontation with the Pharisees, but rather to bring, bring Israel back to the purpose of Sabbath, which is that restoration and wholeness that you referred to. Yeah. Yeah. And even the, you know, and even the, the Jews had laws about, you know, I mean, if somebody's ox fell in the, fell in the bed, you know, you had to save them. So and, you know, there were Sabbath laws that were, that were for the sake of humanity. I think those had just been lost. And again, you know, I think the Pharisees, um, you know, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, they're always pitted at, as the bad guys. And, and, you know, actually they were the, actually they were the good guys who were really, you know, in some ways trying to follow the religious laws. But I think, you know, one of the things that you realize in the New Testament era is that, you know, and I think, and just in the, um, you know, how important Sabbath was, was, was that, you know, they were so afraid to transgress the Sabbath laws, you know, that they, they obviously had lost the point of it. You know, they had lost the, the kind of broader picture, but they were, you know, in some ways, uh, you know, admirably trying to, trying to not, um, 
trying to not disobey God's covenant command. And and so, whereas, you know, I wouldn't say the same for us <laughs> today. I think people just, people just generally have forgotten completely about it. And there's not, you know, not as much fear and trembling about transgressing on the Sabbath. So, or, you know, or kind of transgressing your Sabbath. But um, yeah, no, I mean, so it's, it, it is, I mean, so the, the Pharisees always get a bad rap and, and certainly maybe they deserve it a little bit. But I think, I think sometimes we need to keep up Well, exactly. And, and there were uh, definitely um, strands of Pharisaic tradition that were that would have pretty much been nodding their heads with Jesus all along. Um, and I mean, the, the one group of Christians I have come across that have anxieties around transgressing the Sabbath or people coming out of a, um, uh, like a Seventh-day Adventist background um, where that becomes a defining I don't know enough about the traditions. I really shouldn't say too much, but like, but where it seems to be a, a, a defining mark. Um, uh, but, well, but, but in, you know, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. And somebody brought that up with me. It was funny. I was speaking at Sabbath on a, uh, on a, on a, on a conference and someone said, well, you know, you, <laughs> this was really funny. They said, well, you quoted a seventh day Advist, Adventist and a Jew. So I'm not really sure that I believe what you're saying. <laughs> I said, and I said, sorry about that. I didn't, I didn't know that I was, you know, not quoting the right people, but anyway. Right. Yeah. I that think, disregards but, whatever you say. You have to one, disregard but, it. Exactly. But the one thing um, that that I came back to this person and said, I said, well, you know, regardless of who said it, I said that, you know, the point is, is that, you know, my understanding, at least in the New Testament and kind of in, you know, you know, in the resurrection and in this new age of the spirit um, in the Christian church, that, that the, um, you know, I think the, I think the legal laws of the Sabbath, or let's say the Old Testament laws of the Sabbath, you know, not making a fire. And, and you know, and I, I certainly wouldn't say that Christians need to, you know, subscribe to these laws. Um, but I would say that the, the Sabbath is itself, you know, still to be to be practiced. But, um, but I think in, in kind of the age of Christ and the age of the church, I think there is, I mean, at least maybe this is just my personal opinion, but, but I don't think there has to be a specific day. I mean, I think Sunday is still the Lord's day, you know, for some people that's their Sabbath, but for some people it's not. Um, I think, I think what struck me in Exodus is more, you know, the emphasis on the pattern of six and one. And I think that, you know, and that, and that's what I've tried to convey to my students. Cause one student said, well, what about shift workers? And I said, well, yeah, that's true. That's a really difficult issue. Um, but you know, but you can, you know, you know, potentially ask your boss, you know, that I can be on for, you know, six days of shifts, but I'd like to be off for this one. And, and, and so, yeah, so, I mean, it's, it, I think it takes some, it takes some thinking and it takes some kind of, you know, theological wrestling to say, okay, do we believe that this commandment from the Decalogue, you know, if we, we, we hold to all the other 10 commandments or we think they're still valuable, even in the, you know, in the age of Christ and the age of the spirit, um, you know, then, then, then how do we, you know, how do we hold this, this, this Sabbath command? You know, how is that, how, how does that become, you know, central for the health of, you know, the, the church? Because just as you said, you know, Christ healing on the Sabbath was a, you know, was a foreshadowing and a sign of the Sabbath being a day that leads to wholeness and leads to, leads to our wholeness. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think, yeah, there, there definitely needs to be flexibility and, and creativity around people that can't you know, maybe they're working two jobs and they're just barely staying afloat and, and not being, um, you know, not using it as a club to beat people with. Um, but at the same, but rather an invitation to people to, to engage with as, you know, as God leads them. And I think, um, there's, there is something 
really central in the in the Exodus story, and I think you brought this out really well in the book. So I look forward to your next book on this. Um, but just you know, like even going back to that initial showdown between Moses and Pharaoh, where where Moses go Moses and Aaron go to him, and I think it's chapter five, and they're like, you know, let let the Israelites go so that they can worship. And Pharaoh's like, I don't know. I don't know Yahweh. Like I don't know Yahweh. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, who is and, this guy? And, and you're trying to to cause the Hebrews to Shabbat from their work. And there's that 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 initial um, r- lack of recognition on Pharaoh's part of a of a God of the God of Israel, precisely around this this idea of of a God that would cause people to cease from their work. Like that's unheard of. And so, and then. Of course, Yahweh brings the people out, and then he's like, "Hey, I'm the deity. I'm the God who gives you Shabbat, you know, and and enables you to to rest." Yeah, so and think, that's the that. you know, and, and and that I can't remember whether I got that. I know I got this from somebody else. It wasn't my own idea, <laughs> but I think it was. It might have been um, Terence Fretheim's commentary, or or it might have been Walter Brueggemann. But it was it was this idea um, because I think that's so key in this you know in this battle between Yahweh and and Pharaoh in this this battle of sovereignty and not not just being a battle with the, this human figure Pharaoh, but also this this you know the kind of the gods and cosmic powers of Egypt that that stand in antithesis to. God's kingdom and his will and his sovereignty on earth. And so, and, and, and I think what you see in that, um, you know, that endless, ceaseless, restless, um, slavery of, you know, that Deuteronomy later calls the iron furnace of Egypt, um, is that, you know, that depicts a world without Sabbath rest, you know, and, and, and that is Pharaoh's, um, you know, one of his kind of fundamental sins against creation is that, you know, he has, you know, it's, it's, it's the whole notion of kind of slavery as, as this destruction. I think this is, I think this is Fretheim when he talks yeah, about Yeah, he's real the, big on the cosmic conflict yeah, stuff. Yeah, and the creation, you know, the creation side of it. And then, you know, but, and I think that links so, so well into, again, you know, just as we were saying before, the, the manna story and being, you know, based on this pattern of creation and how central it is just to to the wholeness of life, you know, to humanity, to creation, to give the land rest, to give the people rest, you know, and this is what Pharaoh, you know, just did the opposite of. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. All right. Well, let's shift gears and go back into the iron furnace for a moment. Um, one of the one of the questions uh, I had is is and, and this gets at one of the critical questions kind of um, yeah critical scholarly questions that students raise a lot. And that is, did the exodus really happen? What's your thought on that? Yeah, that's, oh uh, yeah. Yeah, I know. There's so much on that. I mean, I think, I think, yes. I mean, I, I, at the end of the day, yes. Um, I mean, I would say, uh, did it happen in exactly the way that it's recorded in Exodus? Um, you know, I think, I think that is a different question because I think the, um, the way the biblical authors portray it, I mean, in my mind, they're, portraying it in in a very um selective depictive way that is kind of a theological retelling it's a it's a narrative and a rhetorical retelling of of the history of ancient israel and of god's work in egypt now um so was there an exodus i mean i just think i think there has to have been just simply because of the mere fact of of i still don't understand how you could base your entire 
culture and your entire identity on an event um, that that never took place. And actually, <clears throat> I, I stand in somewhat good company. There is um, a former, he's, a, he's retired now, Professor Graham Davies. I remember him standing up at a, he's doing the um, the uh, ICC commentary on and on Exodus right now. And, uh, and he stood up and I think someone asked him the same question. And he just, and I think he said, uh, I won't quote him, um, but I, I do think he said a similar thing and just said, you know, I, I'm, I'm just not sure how you can have such a foundational um, story of identity that was just completely made up. <clears throat> so, so I think the timing and the dating of the Exodus, I mean, I tend to go with the dating of a uh, kind of, you know, 12th century under Ramesses II and, and think that at least the archaeological record seems to point more in that direction. But there are still, there are still other arguments out there for, for an earlier date as well. So, so how do you navigate, uh, you know, when you're talking with students, the issues around, so when you say, you know, it might not have happened exactly how it's depicted there, um, you know, and they say, well, well, then can we trust this story? You know, can we trust this telling that, we, that we're presented with in the Bible? How, do, how can we know what to believe then? Um, you know, how do you address that anxiety? Yeah, that's yeah, that's a that's one often comes up, and and I think what I tell my students usually is that is that you know you don't have to have a fear um, that you know the Bible is somehow um, not inerrant or not fully you know fully inspired you know God's fully inspired word um, just because a story is told um, in a particular manner, um, and I think you know and I think um, uh, you know uh, Joshua Berman's book I think on this is is a nice kind of contribution to the idea of ancient historians who were were not as concerned with um with the facts and the details of the specific story, but they were they were concerned with the rhetorical intent that there was a <clears throat> a purpose of it, and I think this is where you know this is where my my kind of academic colors shine through. But I mean, I'm much more kind of you know Gerhard von Rad and and the salvation history, and I I, I love seeing you know the narrative story of salvation history. And again, not not there's I don't I don't. I mean, I still don't think that there's one, you know, complete unifying meta narrative, but but I do certainly see um, overarching themes and stories and types in in the um, literature. So, so I mean, a good example again, going back to the the manna story. When I teach this in class, you know, I I show you know the students the um, <clears throat> you know the the flaky substance that comes from the the you know the um, the aphids that feed on the tamarisk trees in the Sinai Peninsula, and um, and say you know this could have been what the Israelites thought of as manna. You know I mean it's still a miraculous thing that God provided you know uh, you know an excessive abundance of it, but but it could be that this is you know not not miraculous bread that you know just appeared from nowhere, but actually was a process of nature, and and God used that to feed His children. And in the same way, <clears throat> you know the 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 quails, the coturnix uh, quails that that migrate across the Sinai Peninsula, across the Mediterranean, they get blown down and they get too tired and they just, and it happens today. They just stand on the, you know, on the Sinai Peninsula and you go pick them up and eat them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Have you done that? I haven't. And actually I was, I was reading a Bible story to my, um, to my, to my, at the time, she was my five-year-old daughter. And, um, and the Israelites, there was a picture of the cartoon picture of them picking up the quail. And she said, oh, are they going to keep them as pets? <laughs> I, said, I said, no, no, they're going to eat them. And she's yeah. like, no. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, but, I, think, um, I think before you write your Sabbath book, you need to go to the Sinai Peninsula and eat some quail. 
just to get to inhabit the story. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yeah, so it, um, so, I mean, I just tried to say to the students, you know, that, that I think that there is, I mean, my particular position on this is that I think there is a historicity to the Bible. I mean, especially, especially Exodus. Um, I think it's an, I think it's a very ancient history and I think it's an, it's an ancient history that was passed down and shaped by kind of these sacred authors, those who handle the text, um, you know, whether it was priestly authors or whether it was other authors, um, and it has been formed as these traditions have been passed down and kind of have been supplemented and built up into these narratives that have come into or been brought into the final form in which we have. And so so I try to kind of, uh, you know, ease their fear of, you know, if this didn't happen exactly the way that the biblical author says, you know, if, if the archaeological record doesn't hold up or something like that, then, then somehow I can't trust it. And I said, well, you know, even, even if the, you know, let's, let's just say Exodus was reported as a newspaper article, you know, and let's say every fact and every figure was, was exactly accounted for. I said, do you think that by the end of reading, you know, a very long, you know, 40 chapter newspaper article, I said, would you, would you have any inclination or any further understanding of who God is, your relationship to him and his relationship to us? And, 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 you know, just because you have a particular, you know, fact. And so I think, you know, when you present it that way, I think they, a lot of my students will start to, you know, start to understand, oh yeah, you know, actually this is more than just telling a factual, it's more than about just telling a factual story as much as it is telling about, you know, a theological story that has this immense importance in the life and faith of, of a community of, you know, people of who are, who believe in God, who believe in Yahweh. That's, that's really helpful. And I, I've used, um, and others have as well, used art art metaphor. I, I was a student of Phil Long, B. Phillips Long, who wrote The Art of Biblical History. And um, and one of the things I picked up from him is the, is the analogy with artistic genres. So if you take, and I've shown my students like a picture of water lilies, and then shown a Monet painting of water lilies. And, and then if you ask the question, like, which one is true? Um, you know, or, or which one gets at w- the, the heart of water lilies. And, and really, then you have to think about, okay, what's the sort of genre intent and purpose um, behind Monet's painting? And he was trying to get at the experience of moving out into nature. And, and in order to convey that, he had to move away from a kind of photographic representation. And I think in a similar sense with biblical history sometime in order to communicate its true and deeper meaning and and theological significance, um, there can be a move away from that photographic or videographic reality, but that's not a move away from truth necessarily. And I think, I think when you equate photographic reality with truth, um, then, then you kind of miss out on, on the force and power of, of um, artistic genres. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yo, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that one from you. Thanks. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, go for it. I'm gonna, yeah, I, have, I have a lot I'm stealing from your book, so that's, that's only right. fair. Um, so, all right. You ready for a speed round? Uh, yes, yes. Okay. All right. So, you, you, now some of these you, you might know from listening to past OnScript episodes. So I, have to, I might have to mix them up a little bit, but um, the, the first one's a warm-up. You should, you should expect this one. What's the, what's the most influential book in biblical studies in the last 50 years? 
oh yeah, I knew you were going to ask this one. And, and, and I, and I have actually thought about this and, and didn't come to any sort of answer. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Because, and, and but, oh, by the way, it has to be in Italian. Yeah, 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 that's right. <laughs> but because, well, I did just get back from Rome. I can cite some, uh, some pap- papal scholarship. Um, no, I, you know, it's funny. I don't know. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's so difficult. But I would say for me, and this is probably just because um, I'm just about to start an M- MA seminar on uh, Gerhard von Rad. So, so I would say um, von Rad's Old Testament theology. I would say, I mean, it, it's either, and, and maybe this is just more personal, but I would say it's either, it's either von Rad's Old Testament theology or maybe, um, maybe Brueggemann's Old Testament theology. I mean, I think those two for me, um, and again, it's probably more personal, but, but have just stepped into a, a kind of a type of, of exegesis and, and kind of theological wrestling with the text that, that really just resonates with, with who I am. And whether it's, you know, kind of groundbreaking in, in all of Old Testament, I doubt it. But, but for me, definitely, I think those two have been, have been big, uh, big hitters. By the way, have you, uh, have you seen Crenshaw's biography of Von Rod? Yes. Okay. Yes, all right. I love yeah. That. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I just yeah. picked that up recently, and um, I, I haven't read it yet. But uh, well, it's kind of like an intellectual study of Von Rad. It's not really a biography, but I, I think there's probably still a biography to be written. You know, somebody asked me to do that, and I might might end up doing it after the MA uh, after the MA module. But it's um, yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, you, you you've got to. I mean, I don't know. I I just think. Uh, uh, a guy who commits his life to kind of studying the Old Testament to bring it into kind of the Christian church and into Christian faith, you know, under the Nazi regime, you know, I mean, that's just you right know, under I their mean, noses. Like, yeah, I mean, exactly. at the University of Jena, which was the, <laughs> yeah. you know, bastion of Nazi propaganda ideology and, and pseudo scholarship. So it, it's, it's really astounding. It is amazing. It is amazing. Anyway, yeah. so that's my, that, that okay. would be my we're, big... we're violating the speed round. Okay. Yeah, Since sorry. you're an Exodus guy, um, if you could inflict one plague on the United States, what would it be and why? <laughs> one plague. You have oh, to choose. Oh. <laughs> um, oh, how about, okay, this just it popped into my head, but how about the locusts? Um, and so we can get rid of some of our excessive soybean crops. Okay. All right. That's good. That's a good answer. All <laughs> but right. I wouldn't really uh, want to inflict a plague on my country. <laughs> I know. I knew you're a hardcore uh, ro- uh, biker, not like motorcycle. What do you cyclist. Say? Cyclist. Yeah, yeah, there yeah, you yeah. go. That's a term. Uh, what's the most miles you've biked in a day? Uh, in a day, uh, well, it was 240 kilometers. So that is what, how many, what does that work out to? 120, Two, 180 no. miles or something like that. Yeah. Wow. 180 miles or something like that. But I've got it. I've got another one planned. I've got a, a, a crazy friend who wants me to, uh, cycle 400 kilometers in a day. And I think that's probably what, like, that's like 300 miles or something like wow. that. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know how I'm going to survive is, that. Is one. that going to be like in the mountains too? No, no, thank okay. God. All right. No, it's going to be, it's going to be around, around the East of England. So it's pretty flat. Do you ever do races? <laughs> I don't race so much. No, I just love being on the bike. Okay. All right. Um, would you be willing to sing a song? <laughs> I think I did do this one was coming. Um, only if you pick the song for me and I know okay, it. Okay. Um, what about, do you know any of the songs from Frozen? Oh, probably. I've got two okay. girls. So. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> um, no, now I'm blanking though. I can't think of any. You have to give me, a, give me the um, name. Oh, gosh. Um, well, I only know that, that in terms of names, I only know Let It Go. Oh, let it go, let it go. <laughs> I can't, I can't go much further than dun, that. Dun, dun, dun. I forget the, the, I don't know the lyrics. Hold me back anymore. <laughs> Something like that. 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. My I poor daughters, I hope they're not going to listen to this. That didn't sound very authentic. <laughs> yeah, no, it was um, terrible. <laughs> okay, what's your favorite college prank that you pulled? Oh, favorite college prank. Um, we, well, it wasn't so much a prank, but we we converted the loft of our, um, we had the, the most amazing, this guy called Ray Berry. He's still there. He's actually he was my professor of uh, art and art history in college. And uh, we had a loft of the uh, old art building and there was just old kind of, you know, paintings and all sorts of stuff sort of there. And he, I don't know if he let us or we just broke in, but we, we went in and uh, and created this entire um, kind of whiskey bar uh, type, type, you know, we cleaned the whole place up and, and, and basically the the project he gave us was for the whole class we had we were broken down into groups was change and so and so at the very end we were the last ones and we, and we said okay uh, we stood up the guys who were in my group and we said change and we went upstairs and everybody went upstairs and we all had a whiskey at like two in the afternoon uh, that's <laughs> so you led the class up there exactly so we led the class oh, up cool. there and it was just kind of like so not not so much a prank but it was good fun <laughs> uh, that's great now i anticipate that you're going to expect that i'm going to ask what's one idea in biblical studies it needs to die but um I'm going to modify it um, to ask what's one person in biblical studies that you think needs to die. <laughs> if what if they're already dead? Uh, well, no. no, no, they have to be living. You have to name names. Oh, that's just mean, though. That's oh, like well, that's they're, really, they're probably not going to listen. Don't worry about it. That's really rude. Can I? Can I say? I should. I shouldn't say this. Can I say Chris Tilling just because he'll be, he's the only one who know I'll be mocking him? <laughs> well, um, no. Okay. No, I can't say Chris Tilling. No, okay. no, I, can, you, you can. I can't wish he's that your... on anybody. I'm a priest, good uh, gracious. Oh, okay, all right. Well, um, <laughs> what, all right. If, it was an, if it was an idea, mm-hmm. well, yeah, I mean, if it was an idea. All right, let's go still, with idea. What yeah, if it was an idea, I would still say, I would still say Chris I'm Tilling? just pretty pretty much <laughs> I still pretty much go go for the for the documentary hypothesis I just still don't I still don't follow that I mean I just still you, don't believe you're not, it so not not going for that not, one huh not, not the do, only do, one do you yeah, like, no, but do you like the the P&D distinction you know, it's interesting because, um, you know, uh, um, Tom Dozman's commentary, he's, he's done a great commentary on Exodus, and he um, he kind of categorizes them into P and non-P. And so and so I actually thought that that was a fair distinction. Yeah. I mean, I think what That's I, a what kind I, of st- standard German approach. Yeah. I mean, I just don't think, I mean, the whole idea of completely separate documents still just doesn't resonate with me. I think I'm more of a supplementary man, I think. Brought together in one magic moment. <laughs> exactly. All right. Exactly. Um, who's your role model and why? Oh, my role model. Oh, I didn't know that one was coming. Um, who is my role model? Well, it, it, academic or just anybody? You can choose whatever category. Um, let's see. Actually, you know what? It was probably one of my... Um, so my uh, old pastor uh, is a woman called Neely Tao. And she was... Uh, and I worked with her for seven years at my church in Connecticut. And she was the most outstanding person. I mean, you know, I, I was always more kind of leaning towards the academic side. So, so slightly less pastoral in my ministry. And, and this woman was a, you know, she was a, a kind of a pastoral care bombshell. She could, <laughs> yeah. it seems like if a she, mixed metaphor. If she, if it, was, it is a mixed oh, okay. metaphor, but if it's she, purposeful. if she landed on a scene, you know, it was not a explosion of destruction, but it was an explosion of like love and pastoral care. And goodness, I just learned, I mean, you know, th- that was only one thing I learned from her, but that was definitely, you know, 
just the the necessity of of loving and caring for people was you know was just at the heart of who she was and and I learned so much from her cool as you look over your career as a biblical scholar what's one hurdle that you've uh, had to overcome and and what did you do to overcome it oh you know, I don't know what I did to overcome it, but I think um, when I got into my PhD, so I had I had been uh, most of my education had been done in a in a relatively conservative. I mean, Yale obviously was not so conservative, but but relatively conservative. Um, you know, biblical inerrancy type type um, type uh, environment, and so I think actually one of the one of the biggest things for me to get over was um, just understanding the complexity. And the historicity and even the linguistics behind scripture. I mean, you know, when I got into my PhD, and this all happened during my PhD, and when I was kind of translating um, and looking at the different uh, ways that the Cain and Abel story had been translated, um, you know, it just amazed me how... Oh, what's the word to use? How kind of variated scripture can be depending on what language you read it in, you know, and, and how stories can just come across, even if they're the best translations in the world. You know, and, and it's not to say that our English translations aren't, you know, fantastic and accurate. They are. They certainly are. But, you know, when you when you really delve into language and, and the linguistics and kind of translation theory, um, you do really realize that there is... Um, that there is just so much that we, you know, that is that is really a kind of a divine mystery behind Scripture, and and I think for me, you know, coming from a from a relatively conservative background, I think for me that was probably the most difficult thing, and and it was just like what we were talking about before, like you know, what how do you answer that question, you know, is this real or is this true, or how did this, you know, how do we actually even have this text in front of us, and I I think getting over those um, those hurdles was for me, um, you know kind of a real a real faith challenge and and kind of you know to to be able to say I still hold this as as sacred scripture but I also understand that it went through a very you know kind of human transmission process mm-hmm. do, do, you, do you have a sense of like what what did help you through that process of getting to that point where you could still see it as sacred scripture while letting go <laughs> of of the yeah. uh, of a certain perspective <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I don't know that there was one thing in particular, but I think, I think the more that I, I think, I think probably what it was, was, was more just the result of, of continuing to study scripture and to continuing to see, you know, how, um, and just continuing to understand how scriptures came together, how at least how we, the different theories and kind of the, the whole language and translation behind them. Um, it just, I think what it did ultimately was just gave me a real sense of humility and 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 in approaching the scriptures and not a sense of kind of I own this text in the sense of I, I know exactly how it's written. I know exactly what it's conveying. I know exactly what how to interpret it, which is kind of what what I felt in some ways I came out of in terms of my own education. Um, and much more a sense of a sense of ah, there there is a certain flexibility and fluidity to the text. And it's kind of, you know, it's like, it goes back to your description of the, you know, Monet's rep- representation, you know, and, and, and if you take that kind of same line of thinking in, in many ways, you know, in the gospels, you know, are often kind of, you know, use the, use the example of, you know, you could have four different painters painting the image, image of the exact same thing. And they're all, they're all different. And so I think, I think the more, I studied and the more that I realized that this is kind of what scripture was and, and what I, I think is maybe when I came to the, I, the realization of what scripture, 
what, what's more important about scripture is what it's trying to do and, and what it's trying to teach or what it's trying to convey. Um, you know, you get that, that verse at the end of John's gospel that, you know, that, that Jesus did, you know, so many more miracles, they couldn't even have been contained in a book. But these, these have written, been written down so that you may believe and have, you know, and have eternal life. Um, And I, and I get that sense. And I think, and I think that's much more, I, I think I'm much, much more at peace with the sense of, these these were written for a reason. You know, we may not know how they came together. We might, you know, they might have, you know, doublets and they might be, you know, whatever, you know, whatever textual inconsistencies and all of these kinds of things. But the, but but they were written so that we might believe and we might have life. So, yeah, yeah, I think that's probably the, the journey I went on. Yeah, good. Well, um, I think that brings our non-speed round to an end. Um, but let's, uh, <laughs> I, I wanted to I wanted to talk before we wrap up the the discussion about divine presence itself um because we've we've touched on that already but um you know this is this is the really really the heart of your book and and one of the ideas that intrigued me that you brought up and i i've uh i've wrestled with before in the past as well is this interesting dynamic of god both revealing and concealing himself uh, in the story and i'm reading a quote here from page 101 where you say the cultic tradition of creating an atmosphere of obscurity around the holiest vessel the ark uh, functions as a means for understanding the nature of the divine presence as it was revealed in the wilderness and at sinai so so what do you think's the theological significance um of that dynamic of concealing enshrouding um while also being part of this story where God's coming to dwell and revealing himself to Israel. Yeah, I mean I think to me that is um you know maybe one one of the you know one of the more unique things about ancient Israel's his, ancient Israel's history um rather than kind of other ancient near eastern kind of cultic practices but I mean you know and certainly in other ancient traditions there was um you know there was a sense of concealing the you know concealing the idol but but the uh, but this the sense of i mean the the whole image of the cloud and the fire you know just is is kind of just you know, it's just representative of this idea that you know we can't you know you can't ascertain you can't contain Yahweh. I mean, you just can't. And, and, and I think a lot of that comes out in the, um, you know, in Exodus 3, in the revelation of the divine name. And um, I love, I, I don't have the quote off the top of my head, but I think it was something, I think it was Greenberg who said something about, um, you know, that my name is revealed um, as something that is unknown yet known, but is pregnant with possibility. And it's this, you know, it's this kind of future of the I am or I will be or what I will be. And and so to me, I think that idea of, you know, Exodus, I think, and, and, and maybe the, the, the sacred authors really hold that, um, you know, that, that mystery behind the divine, that it's not something that, that we can control. And I think that actually is, 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 you know, maybe one of the, one of the key points of, of the whole sin of the golden calf is, is not so much that the Israelites abandon Yahweh, but, but that they want to contain him in this, you know, this portable image that they can have as, you know, the Canaanites and Egyptians do and, and whatnot. And so I think, I think it seems to me that in Exodus, there is this, um, you know, this constant need for the authors to express both. And, and this is what I find so fascinating and, and, and so, uh, and so amazing in some ways, um, the desire for God to be in 
relationship and in some ways in unity with his people. I mean, this whole, this whole, you know, Exodus 25, you know, let them build me a tabernacle so that I may dwell in their midst. So literally, you know, like this, this shakan, you know, to, to literally dwell, to kind of set up your tent, you know, make your home in, in the heart of the people. And yet, um, and so there's this intimacy and you see that, you know, in Moses's, you know, kind of Exodus 33 and seeing God face to face and all that. Um, <clears throat> so there's this intimacy, but then, but then the authors are, are always seemingly careful to say, yeah, but we don't get too intimate, you know, that we, we never can fully understand this. And you see this kind of later in, um, you know, in Leviticus with um, um, uh, Nadab and Abihu, you know, and they're offering alien fire and getting, getting sacked. Is that numbers? Is that Leviticus? Numbers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Leviticus, yeah. Um, and, and so, and, and even to a certain extent, and, and uh, you know, and who knows what the story is about, but even to a certain extent in Exodus 4, when, um, you know, Moses is going back to Egypt with Zipporah, and you have this scene where God's about to kill him. You know, and you're just thinking, okay, God, you, somebody missed the plot because he's your main character and, you know, you're about to wipe him out. But I can't remember. It was probably, it might've been proper somebody I was reading, but, but there is a sense of, of, you know, that, that God, you know, he, 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 this is not, you know, he cannot be contained and he cannot be manipulated. And so I think that part of the divine presence is, is really important in Exodus. Yeah. So, so then when, and I, th- I think that's exactly right. And, and part of what excites me about the story of divine presence, as you've told it in Exodus, um, and and also the dynamic too of, and I I found it um, pastorally helpful that sometimes in moving closer to God, you're kind of moving into that cloud of unknowing. I, I know that's not quite quite the right way of putting it, but you you're moving you're moving closer as you move closer to God. You're moving into a, a realm that's less less clear and, and, and more dangerous at the same time. Um, but, but when I've taught on this, one of the things that inevitably comes up is that someone will say, um, yes, um, but aren't you glad that's all so different now in Christ? Because he's torn down the veil to into the temple. We no longer have to, you know, have priests coming between us. Sorry, Mark. Um, we no longer have to have priests between us and God. We have that direct access this is all changed now. So what, what's your response to that, to that reaction to these wonderful stories of God concealing and revealing in the book of Exodus? Has that dynamic now changed in Christ? Yeah, usually I point to, um, oh gosh, I'm so terrible with my New Testament reference. Was it, is it Hebrews 13 or is it Hebrews 12? Our God is a consuming fire. You know, I'm like, he, I'm like, he hasn't changed. <laughs> so yeah, no, I mean, yeah, that's it's, a wonderful it's funny text because... to go to actually. That it is a good one, especially especially after you know the, the author of Hebrews has gone to such pains to say you know now Christ has entered the holy of holies and um, you know actually there's a, there's an interesting um, uh, Doug Moffat I think is, is David Moffat, Moffat yeah. at, um, oh, David Moffat sorry up at um, up at St Andrews um, is is just I think he's just either doing some writing on that or was recently lecturing on that and talking about you know Christ's atonement in the holy of holies you know that he's making atonement for us but the but I mean I think the um, the idea of um, you know the obscurity of God, I think, is is still you know is is still fully known in Christ. I mean, I think there you know when you read you know you pick up any volume on the Trinity or you know anything else for that matter, um, you know you realize that even though we have had kind of the you know the image of you know the 
the image of the fullness of the image of God. Um, I was just reading uh, Colossians just recently, um, and um, you know this this you know that Christ is the fullness of the image of God, and yet. Um, you know, Christ in his risen form. I mean, you, you certainly get that in, in the book of Revelation, you know, when, you know, when John kind of bows down, he can't even bear to be at his burning kind of flaming feet and whatnot. And so I think, you know, and, and, I mean, I think there is still, oh, there's still so much room, even after the revelation of Christ, there is still so much room for, um, you know, for the unknown, uh, the unknown side of God, you know, as, as theologians call it, the kind of the apophatic theology of, of what what just cannot be said of God, um, because because He's God, you know, and 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 so even with the revelation of Christ, I, I certainly I certainly don't think that the that the mystery is is finished, and um, you know that notion of the of the great you know cloud of smoke and fire, uh, you know, I, I I just don't think that's I don't think that's gone. I think that's still. I mean, we certainly have a a clearer revelation of of who God is and who He is in Christ and who this Trinitarian God is for the Christian. Um, but I, but I certainly, I certainly think there is still, there are definitely still. I mean, at least I've experienced in my own faith elements of God's, you know, of of God's, um, yeah, that just the the mystery of of who God is. So yeah, no, I, I don't, I don't think it's good. Well, I, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting <laughs> as you're talking. I'm thinking, well, maybe it's that if Jesus is the the fullness of the glory of God. Um, if there's going to be a fullness of God's glory, there's going to be a, uh, a, a fullness of shrouding and cloud around that glory um, so that we could expect both of those things at the same time. I mean, if Jesus is the the definitive revelation of God, it, he certainly raises as many questions as he answers, right? I mean, and, and the way he communicated even through parables and, you know, it, um, often deliberately shrouding his own message. And and I just think, you know, there's there's probably, we, we can expect a cloud to surround the glory of God as it comes in Christ as well, maybe. No, I think, no, it's great. I mean, when you think of, you know, kind of the great, the great mystics of, you know, of the church and, and I'm thinking of Teresa of Avila, you know, I mean, just this idea of entering into this, you know, to this mansion to have this kind of beatific vision, you know, that, that, that it is still, you know, we don't, we don't see Christ face to face in that revelation, you know, in that vision. Um, and yet, you know, and yet it's still, it's still there, you know, available for us. And, and it's funny because that kind of goes to, um, I mean, that leads, leads more to, to Exodus, um, you know, 34 and Moses's shining face, you know, and, and, you know, and Moses to me, I mean, Moses to me is kind of the, you know, the, the mystic, you know, par excellence, you know, he goes up, he's seen God, you know, he's spoken to him face to face, says, you know, God, show me your glory. And then, you know, after this vision goes up to, you know, goes up or stays up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights with no food or no water. I mean, he, he, is the mystic, you know, and he comes down with this embodiment of God's, you know, of God's presence. So yeah, it's just, it's just fascinating. Yeah, there's there's so much more um, that I'd love to to probe with you at some point, but we're running out of time about divine presence. Uh, I, I I probably need to get my kids dinner here soon, but um, but I wanted to uh, just touch briefly on the golden calf episode, um, which which you've done already. But help help our listeners maybe just get a feel for why this this passage. So Exodus thirty two to thirty four is so is so central not only in Exodus but for the for an understanding of the Old Testament more generally. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the one of the fascinating things that I learned was that um, was that for in Judaism, actually, the the greatest sin is not the sin of Adam and Eve. It's actually the sin of the golden calf, and um, and you get a sense of that because you know Israel has just entered into this covenant relationship with Yahweh. They have agreed to all the covenant terms, um, these kind of this legal binding contract, if you will, and then they so blatantly disobey you know the covenant on so many levels by. By, you know, creating this golden yeah, calf. Yeah, was it, was it Walter um, Moberly who said <clears throat> it's like committing adultery on your wedding night? <laughs> That's a great one. No, I never heard that. Yeah, no, I mean, it's basically, it's basically what it is. And, um, and so, you know, the, I mean, what's fascinating about it is it, is it's situated between, um, you know, and I think very deliberately so, the instructions for the tabernacle and the Sabbath. And then you have Exodus 32 and 34, and then you have the kind of covenant renewal with um, with Moses, and then you have the building of the tabernacle and the followed by the Sabbath. And so you have these, um, you know, so the Sabbath kind of, um, you know, so the tabernacle is is in some ways almost isolated from the incident. So it's, um, you know, it's almost not... Uh, it's it's as if the um, the incident itself is kind of where the tabernacle is, protect, is protected from Israel's sin in some ways, but but as it's shaped out, I mean, I think one of the most fascinating things that I always bring up with my students is because um, everybody kind of you know usually when you read the story you think oh you know Israelites have gone after another god again and and so on and so forth and yet you know there's this one line in there that you can just skim over so quickly but um, but Aaron says you know get 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 everything together and tomorrow we'll proclaim a feast to Yahweh you know and and this is right after they've made the golden calf and and I say to my students you know what what do you think what is going on here like are they just confused <clears throat> and and so i think one of the the central things um in that is 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 one is Israel's impatience you know and and this is a kind of a constant thing throughout the old testament is that Israel Israel is refuses to wait on the lord and to wait on on his you know in his servant Moses and i think that's one big thing is impatience and i think the second big thing about the golden calf is that not only is it the you know complete breaking of the covenant but it's the um but it's the deliberate um you know the deliberate and you can see this in all the language of of you know kind of the the care and the um and the precision that's meant to go into the construction of the tabernacle which is Yahweh's space it's his home it's where he is to be worshiped and you have this kind of tripartite division of the outer court and the inner courts of holy you know the holy court and the holy of holies and so you know here you have this kind of blasting out of the furnace this calf that's you know kind of you know just naked in front of everybody and you know it's there for all to see and exposed and and the people have you know and Aaron has has collected things whereas when they build the tabernacle they give freely and and all of these things and so and so but what you find is um is what's so fascinating to me is this idea that the israelites kind of call this idol yahweh or call it a part of yahweh is this whole notion of uh, and i think this goes back into more kind of ancient eastern ancient near eastern um religion and cultic things is that is that you know that the the divine presence of a god would somehow inhabit a you know an idol of some sort and so really you know what they're doing in that episode you know apart from all the other things is is saying to god um we're going to worship you as we want to 
you know, and, and we're going we're going to decide how we approach you. And the whole thing about divine presence in Exodus is is all about this shift in in how Israel is to understand and respond to God's holiness. And so this kind of just utterly flies in the face of of, of all that. So yeah, yeah so, so, so I think it's, so they're it's trying to manage and control how God not only where God's present, how God's present, but how God's worshipped too. Um, and and that's it, interesting because I'd never thought about this connection before, but really at the heart of the plagues narrative is this idea that Yahweh is saying to Pharaoh, I can come in and do whatever I damn well please in, in Egypt, you know, like he, he, he can walk right into Egypt and, and, uh, and, and take full control and, and Pharaoh has no power to stop that. And, and I think, um, that that's an interesting overriding or sorry overarching motif in the book of Exodus that you've done a great job uh, bringing out. Um, oh, we haven't even talked about the the tabernacle. My goodness, there's so much so much here. My my <laughs> so my, much, my, so my friend calls the tabernacle God's bling, um, and and I think <laughs> I think there's uh, so okay. All right, let's get your your one minute soundbite on why Christians should bother to read Exodus 25 to 40 um, and, and, you know, all the detail on the tabernacle. What's, what's going on there? Yeah. Oh, man, there's so many levels, but, but on, on one level, I think you're, you're seeing a, a kind of a type of, of a recreation. So this is kind of going back to the garden, going back to the original creation story that certainly the tabernacle has themes and, and elements of, of kind of a new creation that God is doing this new thing in kind of inhabiting the earth. Um, but I think all of the, um, yeah, God's bling. I love that. I love, you know, I mean, I mean all of the symbolism, you know, the gold and the holy places and all of that kind of stuff, you know, the symbolism comes through, but I think what, you know, what ultimately the tabernacle does is, is it says that, is it's representative? Well, I mean, you know, God says, make this in the uh, the tavnit, in the uh, the image of of the heavenlies, and so there's certainly a sense of reproducing kind of what is the cosmic order of how you approach, you know, how you approach Yahweh. And so, you know, the tabernacle just becomes this locus of, you know, again, a, you know, it's it's God's it's God's home, you know, it's where He's going to dwell, and if if anything happens to you know, to upset or to, um, you know, to kind of, uh, to contaminate his home, then, you know, the, the, the result potentially it for Israel is that, is that he'll depart, you know, that he'll leave because he can't be, you know, in this, you know, kind of unholy situation. And so, I, I mean, that's what, that's what, I mean, there's so much kind of anthropological stuff and, and, and all the other things behind it. But I think for me, you know, the, the tabernacle is, is, you know, and maybe again, from the later Israelites who are writing this history, you know, the tabernacle is kind of that, I don't know, you know, sometimes I often wonder whether there's a certain nostalgia kind of going on in, in the biblical authors and looking at this time where, you know, there wasn't necessarily a temple, although the temple is celebrated and it's great and, and all these things, but that, but that there was a time in Israel's history, you know, in its kind of, you know, 
in its newborn, uh, you know, kind of growing into this new identity, where where God was just present in this, you know, por- in this portable tent, you know, and He just lived at the heart of us, and you know, we kind of enjoyed His glory and His holiness, and you know, and 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 all of that kind of stuff. And I, I sometimes wonder if that's what's going on in some of the writings in the Pentateuch. I don't know. I don't well, know. Well, Mark, uh, this has been really enjoyable to talk to you about Exodus. I could I could keep going uh, all day, but um, but our, our listeners are going to have to. To, to purchase your book. I highly recommend it. And um, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with OnScript. Uh, thanks for having me, Matt. It's great to be with you. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.